Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Eve McDonald for a conversation about Carthage. Dr. McDonald is lecturer in ancient history at the School of History, Archaeology and Religion at Cardiff University based in Wales. She is author of the book, Hannibal, A Hellenistic Life, which was published by Yale University Press. And she joins us today from London in the UK. Welcome to call, Eve. Hello. Thank you, Andrew. Nice to be here. It's nice to chat with you, Eve. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. So in the, con- in the context of history, what was Carthage? Ah, uh, uh, Carthage. So Carthage was so many different things to so many different people. Um, it was a city that was occupied from the 9th century BC through to the 7th century AD. So you can imagine this enormously long history um, of different occupations and different phases right there on the north coast of Africa in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a city that was a place of connectivity. It was a city that was a place that was coveted by different powers and empire. And it's a city that just really is, um, plays large really in our imaginations, I think, of the ancient world. Okay, and perfectly fine to use um, common day terminology if it helps here here and there for, for myself and all the, the listeners. So if you were to describe where um, Carthage was or is, um, how would you just describe that? So Carthage is today um, a suburb of the city of Tunis. It really sits uh, out on a sort of semi-peninsula that uh, is just outside the city of Tunis, and it's a beautiful place to live today. It's like a commuter uh, place, actually, where you can live in a little bigger house, live by the sea, and the big city isn't far away. So that's where it is. So it's in Tunisia. Okay, and... Uh... As we were chatting about before hopping hopping on the show, I plan to get to uh, uh, Tunisia in the reasonable future. Um, so, if someone was to visit it uh, t- today, can, can you can you describe um, can you describe what the the kind of the, the what they would what they would see the, the like the, the the vestiges and in in that kind of proper um, Carthage area um, near Tunis would would there be anyone that would still live or is it really considered at this point a archaeological site? So it's quite an interesting place because of the history of its discovery and um, excavations. So when the um, city of Tunis grew really out of the vestiges of the ancient city of Carthage, Tunis became an important Arabic city after the Arab conquest because it was set back a little bit off the coast. It was protected from the coastal uncertainties, piracy, and all the things that went on in the early medieval world. And so Carthage itself sits out on this peninsula. Now, it became, in the late 19th, early 20th century, quite 
a desirable place to have your house. And so in the early French, in the French colonial period, for example, the commuter train that ran from Tunis to Carthage was built and people lived out there. And so what you have when you go to Carthage and see it is this interesting mix of very nice suburban houses and swimming pools and some tennis courts and restaurants and beaches and also this incredible archaeological site in one of the most famous cities from the ancient world all juxtaposed bits and pieces so there's part of the city is protected as an archaeological heritage site by unesco but also other parts of the city are people's homes and we know that some of our most profound finds have actually been in somebody's garden, for example. So it's really quite interesting. It's a great place to go and just walk around as, as a site because of that. So because there's you know lots of sort of engaging places to see and different sites to see from all different phases of its occupation. So from its very earliest phases through to its end phases as a Punic city. And then in the Roman period, we have some monumental buildings, amphitheaters, theaters. We have large bath complexes. There's ancient churches. I mean, there's there's really everything you, you want to see, but it is actually kind of an interesting place because it doesn't sort of present itself in the same way that Rome or Athens does to you. It doesn't have one sort of amazing center like the Forum of Rome or the Acropolis of Athens that you go, oh my goodness. It's got many, many different little pockets in different places. Sounds very interesting and probably uh, one of the reasons has kept your uh, imagination and, and uh, you know, uh, you know, held and gripped on, on this topic for, for so long. There's so much, sounds like there's so much there, there still. Yes, there is. And there, I mean, and there's always, always new discoveries and changes. And it's only been in the last, say, 10 years that we've really got actual hard data on the earliest foundation, for example, of the city of Carthage when it was founded by the Phoenicians. Our ancient sources tell us that Carthage was founded in and around, you know, the late ninth century. These are Roman sources, they're not Phoenician Punic sources, but that's what they dated it to. And it wasn't until just excavations in, in 2010 that we found radio, we, have, we found animal bones that gave us radiocarbon dates that coincide with those ancient dates. So we do now know that the city was founded in the late 9th century BC, but that's only been in, you know very recent. So there's ongoing um, excavations and always new things being discovered there. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so, and I, you, you brought up Phoenicians um, in, in part of your response there, but I'll, I'll ask it as a, a question. So what's, what's known about the people that originally uh, settled in, uh, I think you mentioned the late 9th century BCE, BC. Yeah, so we know that the city of Carthage was founded very famously by um, people, Phoenician-speaking people, who came from the city of Tyre. Now, Tyre is in modern Lebanon, in southern Lebanon today. And Tyre was one of a, a group of important um, city-states along the coast of what we call the Levant. And, and that's Syria, uh, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, all that region, coastal region. And um, the Phoenicians spread out across the Mediterranean in the late, early first millennium BC, 9th century, 10th century BC, they're moving across the Mediterranean and they found the city of Carthage, the people from Tyre, 
um, in, in the ninth century. Now, there's great myths about this, of course, and this is the myth of the Phoenician queen, the Tyrian queen, Dido. And Dido's story, which is all wrapped up in the Carthaginian wars with the Romans in the third and second century BC, but the myth of Dido and Aeneas and the foundation of Carthage, of course, forms part of the story of Virgil's Aeneid. And it's one of the most famous tales we have from the ancient world. So there's a mythical story in the foundation. And then there's the practical story in the foundation. Those two things don't always coincide, but they're quite interesting to see. Um, traditionally, hist uh, we, we know that uh, Dido came from Tyre. She brought a group of nobles with her and they founded this city on a place uh, on the Bursa Hill in Carthage. And we, we still call that hill the Bursa. Uh, historically, we see a little less dramatic. We don't know who was there, but we do know that there is this foundation. The earliest uh, city is there. And from the ninth century through to the sixth century BC, it continues to grow and prosper. And we hear of Carthaginians starting to send out their own settlements in other parts of the Mediterranean. So for example, on the island of Abitha, in the Balearic Islands, that's when we think the Carthaginians started to, what we, we use the word colonize, but it might not always be the right word for this. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what you see. And that's about the, the origins of Carthage. Those two things come together. How would you summarize, it sounds like there's consensus in the scholarly community that Carthage was founded by Phoenicians. How would you summarize uh, that evidence that provides that confidence that Carthage was founded by Phoenicians? Ah, well, so a couple of different things. We, we see it in the ceramic material evidence, for example. We see the way that um, so similar ceramic traditions from the Levantine uh, coastal sites coming to North Africa. So there's a connection in the material culture. We also see it in the way that the houses are built in these early periods. Um, we see a similar domestic architecture. So at some level, it's very basic um, that you can see these connections that, that ebb and flow. And of course, there's a really important indigenous part of the community of Carthage that's always been there. Um, the, the Numidians, as they were called in antiquity, sometimes they're referred to as Berbers. Today, we call them the Amazir, um, the indigenous people of North Africa. So the, the city is really a bit of both of those things. But the foundation um, by the Phoenicians is also attested to throughout the literary sources. The connection with Tyre, especially with that city, is talked about, for example, by Polybius, uh, one of our best sources for the third and second century BC, he talks about the people of Carthage sending a, an annual tithe or a tax back to the city of Tyre, to the temple of their god Melkart there. And he talks about that ships being sent with the sort of percentage of the GDP so that there is this sort of foundational link between the two cities. And um, so we believe the ancient sources are accurate in this and then we also see some of the material culture that backs that up a city like um constantinople before constantinople there was a settlement and it was called byzantium so what's what's known about what may have been there if anything prior to carthage so we yeah one of the things that's really interesting about about the Phoenician settlements in general, and this is all across the Mediterranean and certainly across the Western Mediterranean. So when, when we think about 
Phoenician cities in the Western Mediterranean, you're thinking about Palermo and Trapani and Sicily, you're thinking about Cadiz in Spain, you're thinking about um, Carthage, of course. So there's many, many of them. And they often have in common is that they are, there's, there's nothing there before they're founded. But the um, indigenous settlements are usually slightly inland. They're not right on the coast mostly because the Phoenicians and, and the Greeks as well who followed were, you know, one man's pirate is another man's privateer or person's privateer, of course. It was very, very dangerous and could be considered dangerous to live on the coast. So um, often indigenous, whether it's in Spain or in North Africa or Sicily, are slightly inland. And so that's how, uh, why there wasn't anything there beforehand. Okay, okay. So yeah, so scholars believe there was uh, there was there was no no settlement prior to the the city of Carthage. We have no evidence for it. No, no. Um, and okay. and you know we've dug down the, the excavations have dug down through to natural soil. So yeah, as okay. far as we know, now it's a huge area. So that may not be true, and there may be something somewhere that we haven't that has, we haven't found. So understood. But at this point, that's what the evidence is yeah. showing. Okay, um, and so you brought up uh, something you in in your response to you mentioned the different. Uh, parts that would fall within this uh, state. So we should probably cover gar- gar- what's known about governance. And this, this Carthage just Carthage wasn't just a city; it, it was a city-state. So can you speak more about the concept of a st- city-state in this period of time and what's known about its governance structure? Sure. Yes. So early foundations are embedded in myth, and the stories are very mythical. So we don't really know very much about early Carthage. We assume that it's um, governed. Uh, by a king or uh, there's sort of a a, a, um, a role there for an individual, a kind of monarchy. That changes and evolves in as it does in many parts of the Western Mediterranean, ancient Rome, for example, into a republic, um, probably around the 5th century BC, 6th, 5th century BC. And we then know more about that period of governance. Carthage was run as a as a republic um, and as an oligarchy. So like ancient Rome was, a a group of elite families really ran the city and they ran it through elected positions. There were two elected positions. They were called the suffets, um, which is a word that comes from what we think means judge in the Punic or Phoenician language related to the Hebrew word shofetum. So the the word is very similar and it's sort of the role of the chief magistrates of the town and there were two of them and they were elected annually. That much we do know. And we know a fair bit about uh, other roles. There's a kind of Senate type um, institution or body at Carthage in this period. It's called the Adarim. We know that there are perhaps a general, a military class as well. Uh, so there seems to be a separation in the civic and the military governance. And um, otherwise, we don't know very much. And this is one of our problems about, about this phase in Carthaginian history, because, of course, it was destroyed famously by the Romans, burnt to the ground after three wars. And really, we don't have the Carthaginian view or a perspective on this to tell us how they were governed and we only have those words of, of other people about it so it's not always so clear okay and even the the bit that is known and you mentioned some fairly specific stuff is, is that is is any of that uh being relied on uh 
them, so it's car, car, people from Carthage, or is it being relied on external sources as well in those cases? So almost all external sources, the best, um, the best narratives that we have about the um, uh, Carthaginian government comes from, uh, Aristotle wrote something called the Constitution of the Athenians in which he talks about comparative governance and he talks about Carthage in that in that context. So that's quite interesting. He gives us some insights into the way they're governed. And um, Polybius, again, the Greek historian, tells us a little bit. We do have some interesting inscriptions from Carthage itself that do mention the role of the Sufet. And we, we certainly see in other parts of North Africa where there were many connected settlements uh, of people who were ethnically and linguistically connected to the Carthaginians anyway, that 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 role of the Sufet continues into the Roman period. So even after Carthage is conquered in other places that were connected and allied and Phoenician Punic speaking, we see those magistrates roles being um, roles being referred to on bilingual inscriptions in the early Roman period from places like Lepcus Magna in Libya. So, so there's bits and pieces of evidence that can help us piece that together. Okay. But it is obscured. It's not a clear picture where we have somebody who's told us the whole inner workings of the Carthaginian government in this period at all. Okay. You have more work to do, Eve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep, if we keep, can only find that text keep that just you. tells us all about it. Keep you busy. Um, okay, and I and I want to make sure I didn't say something inaccurate. Um, uh, so the uh, I mentioned it as a city state. Is do scholars ever believe? Do scholars ever consider it a city state? And then at what point uh, do you? And if so, at what point uh, do you consider it then becoming a republic? What is that actual point? Is it when there's then different spots that have some kind of uh, political power to influence a central authority? Can you speak about that a little bit? Oh, so, yeah, I mean, when I say that sort of evolution into a republic, it's still a city state with a okay. with a republic with a government that is run like a republic. That's that's only that. Okay. That's all that that really means. I mean, it's a city state because, at any, you know, exactly when it stops being a, a colonial foundation or a settlement from Tyre into its own uh, autonomous power and then becomes a power that seems to have allied settlements and connections around the Western Mediterranean is debated. But we, we think that, again, the 6th, 5th century is when we see a lot of this happening. And we certainly see that Carthage has an external role in the Mediterranean, whether it turns up as an ally of different um, cities, other city-states, Etruscans or places in Sicily, as a... Uh, sort of a military role, its navy is used in, in military support. We don't really know. It is not actually clearly articulated and not everyone agrees on this and scholars don't certainly agree on the extent of Carthaginian power. And I, you can see that I'm very consciously avoiding that word empire because this is the big problem is that whether Carthage actually had a an empire or whether it was more of a, um, an allied commonwealth kind of setup is something that people really do debate because so much of this is coming from external sources who fought against the Carthaginians 
Of course, it's in their interests to kind of create the Carthaginians as this power. We don't really know what the actual dynamic of their their, 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 their power was, but it was certainly important. I like that kind of term of a loosely allied commonwealth almost, um, but it's, it's, there are people who debate this on, on all sides. Okay. It's not straightforward. Okay. Yeah. You got, you sufficiently got the disclaimer in there. <laughs> <laughs> What's known about the, um, population sizes, um, and, Maybe let's let's say let's say, let's put that question to the city itself. So the the city of Carthage is what's known about how how large population wise it was. So the city in so the city of Carthage in its different phases was of course very different in population. When it is a pre destruction by the Romans, uh, at its height, say the third century BC and into the early second century BC, the city estimated population is very difficult but large is what i'm going to say a large city in the mediterranean for this time now what does that mean when we think of big big ancient cities we really are thinking of about 400 years later so you you have to get the time frame in there when we're thinking about big ancient cities like ancient rome when it's perhaps as big as a million people or Alexandria, that's like the second century AD we're dealing with. So in the third century BC, early second century BC, before Carthage is destroyed by the Romans, it is a big ancient city. It's It's got parallels with say, the ancient city of Syracuse on Sicily, the Greek city, um, you know, Athens, uh, certainly Alexandria at that time. And we're probably up to 100,000 people. I think that would be a uh, fair a fair estimate. Some um, ancient skull, uh, ancient sources like Strabo, who's a Roman period geographer, is very, very useful because he tells us all about, you would know all about Strabo's stories of the Mediterranean. He well over exaggerates it, we think, to 250,000. That seems very big for the time, but I mean, it may be that, that, it, that it's true. I mean, the city itself was walled and it encompassed agricultural land inside those walls too. So it's a little bit difficult to know about densities and make those estimates. But yeah, so big is how I'm gonna answer that. It was a big city in the third century BC. It was a big important city in the third century BC. Yeah, I know it can be difficult to do uh, population estimates uh, in certain periods in certain parts of the the world. There wasn't, doesn't seem like there was, uh, you know, censuses and stuff that that uh, were being conducted the same way they are t- today in many countries, and and the, you know having those survive. Um, what's known about the language that uh, language or languages that these people would have spoken? So yeah, I, um, Carthage, the language of the Carthaginians was a Phoenician language. A Phoenician sort of probably evolved from its original into a, a more. Uh, sort of local dialect of the Phoenician language. We call it Punic, um, and we call it Punic because that's what the Romans called the Carthaginians. It's a Semitic language, so it's very closely linked to uh, Hebrew, and it was actually people who could read Hebrew who were the first to decipher the inscriptions of the Punic language. 
And so that was the main language of Carthage was Punic. But a lot of people, educated people in Carthage, of course, would have, um, in Punic Carthage, would have spoken Greek probably as well, because Greek was, uh, we always use that term, the lingua franca of the Mediterranean in the pre-Roman period. And so we know Carthage's famous citizens that we know about were educated in Greek, uh, spoke Greek, and um, would be able to engage with it. And there's also, um, and those are the languages that we have mostly in inscriptions that are written. We also would have had the Numidian or the indigenous language as well. Um, although again, in a written language form, the most often in inscriptions and the evidence we have is the, is the Punic language there. Okay. The Numidian language, is, would that have been considered a, uh, an indigenous language? Then? Yeah. yeah, it would have been. Okay. Um, what's known uh, about their uh, religious orientations? Interesting. So like many ancient cities and especially ancient colonial foundations, there's a lot of different religious influences because of course these cities are have all kinds of different engagements. So there's local indigenous and then there's the imported deities that come with the people who settled there and also um, deities that develop over time. So you have a pantheon, uh, we, we would call it um, at Carthage, based around a chief deity whose name is Baal. And Baal means Lord. So that's not actually a specific, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a very sort of general big God kind of idea. Um, there's also an important female deity called Tanit. And, and Tanit seems very much a local Carthaginian uh, development. So Baal is a Near Eastern god, and many of the gods that are worshipped in Carthage are Near Eastern gods, but, some, but Tanit is um, an indigenous development that comes out of the city itself, and she's an important um, force uh, in the sort of goddess role. We also know that there's a civic god there whose, whose name was Eshmun, and so the top of the main hill at the city of Carthage is the Birsa Hill, as it was, supposedly where Dido first had a palace. And then this becomes, um, in, the, in the civic period when it's a city-state and we know more about it, there's an important temple to Eshmun at the top of the Birsa Hill. And Eshmun seems to be connected to the way that the city itself is run. Um, we equate Eshmun and our ancient sources due to the to the Greek god Apollo, although there, we have this going on, this syncretization, as we call it, of different gods as different influences spin through. Melkart, very important god to Carthage, when in mythology Dido flees the city of Tyre, she takes with her some of the temple um, objects of the god Melkart, who's big temple was entire and this is part of the um, urban foundation myth is that Melkart goes to Carthage and he's part of that foundation god and Melkart's a really important god in the whole of the western Mediterranean in the in the pre-Roman period he has an important temple at Cadiz which is of course in Spain today and he is syncretized to um, the Greek god Hercules or Heracles and so Melkart sort of wanders around the Western Mediterranean with these Phoenician 
foundations and cities. So Melkart, and Melkart's very important to Carthage itself because of that connection, it seems. Um, and then you have imported deities. So we know, for example, that Demeter, the Greek goddess Demeter and Persephone's cult is brought to Carthage too from Sicily. So there's a bit of a hodgepodge of deities going on like there are in all ancient cities at this period. It's not entirely, there's different influences. And we have lots of um, tomb objects from Carthage that give us a little bit of a very, or a, a very strong Egyptianizing flavor in the iconography of death and burial. And so that gives us some ideas perhaps around some of their afterlife beliefs. Again, we don't have that written down anywhere, but we see some really strong influence from Egyptian iconography in their tombs. So that might be something that is a more personal kind of religion. So there's certain state gods, there would be um, individual religions, all that going on at the same time, a big mix. There would have been Jewish people, there would have been Judaism, certainly, um, as a, as a functional part in North Africa from a very early period. Uh, so yeah. And then it becomes a really important in the Roman period, in the late Roman period, a really important center of Christianity, a lot going on at Carthage religiously. Can you speak a little bit about, uh, their, their trade, what they may have been some popular products they may have been manufacturing, importing, exporting. And also I'm, I'm curious. So if there's evidence that they were doing a lot of international, if they were doing a lot of international trade. And what I mean by that is outside of their actual city-state um, re republic. Yes, definitely important in terms of communication and just the nature of the location. I mean, Carthage was founded for success economically um, because of its connectivity. So it's just a short hop to Sicily. We know east and west along the coast, you can get to both ends of the Mediterranean very quickly. And we also know tales of really famous Carthaginian navigator named Hanno, who supposedly circumnavigated Africa. Um, so trade is a really important part of the the story of Carthage's economy. One of the things that they would have been trading is has to do with their own agricultural wealth. It's a hugely wealthy agricultural region, and the the, the Carthaginians were um, significantly known in the Mediterranean at, at, for their agronomy, for their uh, agricultural technologies, for their winemaking. Um, so we we think certainly the only thing we're told by the ancient sources that was actually translated from the libraries at Carthage. Um, this is, you know, tales the Romans tell us, was a treatise by an agronomist whose name is Mago and who is famous for winemaking, for viticulture and all these things. So they, they were agriculturally very, very productive. So that was really important. They were also had, we, we know of really advanced um, forges and, uh, you know, uh, technology. Uh, I think it's like, like a composite steel, a sort of basic steel seems to have been made in their iron forges. So there's high levels of um, technological skills and advancements at Carthage too. And then there also, you know, trade in the ancient world is very much what we call cabotage. So it's, it's picking up and dropping things off from one place to the other. And that's really important from the very early period in the um, Western Mediterranean, iron ore, silver from the uh, Guadalquivir or the River Betis in, in Spain. Uh, there, there's all kinds of 
goods going around the Mediterranean, and Carthage is very much a key part of that. We also see ivory, a lot of ivory projects, of course, and Carthage is very deeply connected to elephants. Um, but that's that's something we see. And then there's a tantalizing, but no real sort of clear story yet on a, across Sahara trade too. So that's a really interesting idea, something that was developed by the peoples who lived in the oases of the of the Sahara, but um, certainly exploited in the Roman period, but uh, would have probably been being exploited in the Carthaginian period too. Is there enough um, evidence whether products that survive or other writings where you'd feel confident to describe what the relationship Carthage had with Rome when they weren't at war. So, oh. so in between the actual conflict periods, I've um, Dr. Uh, Catherine Lomas uh, has been on the show from Durham University in the past. We covered the first Punic War, so we have covered the the first Punic War on on this show. Interestingly, we covered uh, we just did a recording that hasn't been published yet on what what was occurring with Carthage after the first war so in between those the first and, and second war so I am I'm interested if if there's enough evidence where you could you you could confidently describe what that relationship was with Rome when they weren't actually at war sure yes and there's a wonderful book if if anyone out there is interested it was published in 1997 but it's still wonderful by a man whose last name is Palmer called Roman Carthage at Peace and it is exactly about that. It's it's all about how well, first of all, and deeply connected the two cities were. So we know they had peace treaties, of course, going back to the very foundation of Rome as a republic, back to the 6th century BC. Carthage and Rome, according to our Greek historian Polybius, um, had signed peace treaties that delineated exactly where you could trade, what ports, and uh, who could go where, and, and obviously just reflective of a large amount of contact and connectivity in the region between the two, two cities. Now, of course, Rome isn't very important when this all starts out, but by the 3rd century BC, by the 4th century BC, Rome's a very important city in central Italy, and um, we have sort of indications of uh, trade back and forth between the two, again, north of Rome at the time, the Etruscan city-states, they are very important for their metal ores, uh, and Carthage uh, has significant cities and control, we think, of southern Sardinia, so there too uh, we have metal. There's talk, and some of the sources for this are very difficult, because you can imagine with the um, the play a, a sort of calm a com comedic play if you think about it it's called new comedy and there's a play called the little carthaginian written by a, a playwright a latin playwright named plautus and they talk about sheepskins and they talk about different kinds of fruits and vegetables being traded back and forth between carthage and rome um it, it's so it's it's elusive about how much we're just getting a Roman view because it is almost entirely from the Roman perspective. Hard evidence. Olive oil is really important in North Africa. I mean, like if I'm just going to distill it down to what the hard evidence is, we have amphora being coming from North Africa. So we're assuming those are things like olive oil and wine. Um, we, we don't know about organic materials, but we could assume that there is some trade in, 
in uh, agricultural products because of their productivity. But that is a lot of that stuff is reflected backwards with what happens in North Africa after the Romans occupy. But yeah, so we but we know it's it, they're deeply connected, and we know that there's a huge amount of business between individuals in Rome and individuals in Carthage who are acting on their own and are trading back and forth. We also know that, for example, this really important um, fish seems to be a, 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 as an important sort of mover of fish around the Mediterranean, which is sometimes interesting to think about. But um, from Cadiz on the Atlantic coast, of course, where the fish of Spain, where the fishing is a little bit different, all the way through around to roads in, in Greece. And uh, we have evidence and Corinth, we have evidence of Carthaginian amphora transmitting back and forth. And perhaps some early precursors of the famous Roman fish sauce might be part of this story, the garum, as it's called. So, yeah, I think they would have dabbled in all kinds of trade. Thank, thank you for expanding on that, Eve. Um, so working our way towards the, the later part of our conversation today. So what happened to Carthage? So um, the, well, if, if you're covering the Punic War, you know that in the Mediterranean, in the period after what I call the Hellenistic Mediterranean, so what we would call refer to as the period after Helen, um, Alexander the Great has died, so the end of the 4th century, early 3rd century BC, there's a really big expansion of individual city-states that start to expand out and we get a, a very developed and a highly chaotic period that Arthur Eckstein, who's a scholar, calls it Mediterranean anarchy. And what you have are, are the big city-states and the Hellenistic kingdoms in the East, all of them just expanding their influence and territory all around. So you have Syracuse, Rome, and Carthage, all three of them in that central Mediterranean zone and it is really all three of them at play. And then after the first Punic War, Syracuse basically drops out. And then it's just Roman Carthage. And um, you, you have Rome expanding north. And you have uh, Carthage expanding west into the Iberian Peninsula, into Spain and Portugal region and conquering. And everywhere the two city-states are growing and expanding come points of conflict. And so they fight three two epic wars and one, as I like to say, kind of much less epic war, but tragic consequences for Carthage uh, over the course of 264 BC to 146 BC. And in the end, in 146 BC, at the end of what we call the Third Punic War, Carthage is completely destroyed, burnt to the ground. And um, that's really the end of Carthage um, Punic Carthage as an entity and as a, a cultural power in the Mediterranean. And the Romans have really won. They, it was really about who was going to control the Western Mediterranean when you look at it from hindsight and perspective. Of course, that couldn't have been their view at the time. They were both just rolling along both powers, um, you know, doing what they did, expanding their influence. There's huge growth in wealth and trade and connectivity in this period. And it's a really important time for um, these two city-states uh, in terms, and it, it, people like to say, you know, it was always going to be one or the other, it couldn't have been both. And, and that's probably entirely true with the attitude that there was at the time. It would have been very difficult um, for 
these two powers to exist unless they had one had been willing to ally with the other you know and and the romans weren't very much in the mood for that kind of thing as we see from their subsequent history i mean the romans are the great conquerors of the mediterranean at that period so carthage Carthage was a superpower in the Mediterranean for um, several hundreds of of years. How do you, how, how does the influence that they had then? How do you think that has uh, lived on today in in any way? So I think that it's it's very difficult because it happened in the third and second century BC, and I always like to explain that if if Rome had disappeared in the third and second century BC, we wouldn't know anything about Rome either. The stories hadn't been written down. The, we really would have very little evidence. So it's the same idea. So it's difficult to know exactly what the legacy of Carthage within that wider landscape is because it, it was so subsumed by the Romans and the Romans owned the story. So it's a little bit tricky to articulate I mean, really important ideas, and one of the things that every you know everybody would say is that it was in the result of the the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome that really makes Rome into this international power that it becomes across the Mediterranean, and it really creates the Rome that becomes the Roman Empire. So, in many ways, that's one of the fundamental legacies of the Carthaginians. Of course. The Carthaginians are an extension of the Phoenician peoples, and the Phoenician peoples and the Carthaginians spread. Well, the, the alphabet that we all use today, of course, comes from the Phoenicians. Um, there's all kinds of ideas behind technologies that we've talked about. Uh, so it's it's an interesting thing to try to pinpoint an exact uh, legacy because of the timing. One of the things Carthage was certainly as as far as we can tell, and certainly from the stories they put it, it was a big, very um, multicultural kind of absorbing culture. So people lived there at Carthage from all different parts of the Mediterranean. The people at Carthage spoke uh, different languages. Their culture was very hybrid. Uh, so it was a what we would think of as a big Mediterranean port reflecting all these different cultures that existed all around the Mediterranean. One of the issues that happens with the Roman conquests of the whole of the Mediterranean is you get a much more sort of homogenous view in, in some ways because it's transferred through 500 years of Roman power. Um, so that's really one of the issues is, is the actual legacy is, is hard for us to know uh, in terms of its concrete developments, I think. But as a, well, and I mean, there's so many ways you can think about the destruction of Carthage and, and what it meant um, in terms of the way we think of of ancient cities and epic and the kind of tragedy of, of destruction and things like that. So there's a lot, I think, that factors into the stories and the myths about Carthage as well in, in, in the larger Mediterranean lore that are really important. I visited uh, Cartagena in Spain for the first time last uh, last summer. And I was pleasantly surprised uh, to learn that uh, that city was 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 founded um, by by people of Carthage. So I think yes. uh, it depends how you tackle a, a question like that, right? Because um, there, there 
their uh, different cities and different influences that would, would live on today, whether through architecture or also posterity. Well, I think that's really that's a really good point. I love Cartagena. It's a fantastic place. And so, you know, it's, there's things there that are, are, are wonderful. And I do actually really want to go to Cartagena in Colombia because I think I need to go to all three Carthages. Uh, and, and, and I do like that idea. But the that city is fantastic for looking at what we think of as Carthage because it is a foundation that was newer. It was it continues to be occupied. But there, there's some really interesting and really advanced Hellenistic defensive walls there. The port, of course, was is still the port of the Spanish Navy. Um, so it's got a lot of the hallmarks of, of the great city of, of, of uh, Carthage and these sort of types of cities the Phoenicians and Carthaginians like to found and how we still live in them today and how important they are in the Mediterranean. So before we hopped on the, uh, on the show, uh, you mentioned you're working on another book project that's related to Carthage. Do you want to tell everybody what you're working on? Yeah, my, my colleague and I are writing um, a book that uh, we're almost finished. And it's it's about the way that the archaeological excavations at Carthage unfolded in the 19th and then 20th century and even up to today. And it's really t- sort of tells the story of the way the a site like Carthage is so influenced by modern politics. So this is the period of the Napoleonic Wars and then through the French colonial occupation of North Africa and Tunisian independence. And all these different events had a huge and profound impact on on the way we understand the landscape of ancient Carthage and the way the archaeology was done. And so it's it's really about how both modern history archaeology and the past are still alive today and are still evolving today and so that's that's the book very soon to be out hopefully you're a great communicator eve and your passion for uh this topic really comes through in your communication thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge thank you for inviting me andrew it's a real pleasure always a treat to talk about credit So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that is related to this uh, conversation that Dr. McDonald wrote, Hannibal, A Hellenistic Life. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Eve and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.